You're about to listen to a true story told live because this is True Stories Live. Brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Arts Centre and me, Molly Naylor. Sylvia Madrigal. Hi. (laughs) I am sobbing, full on ugly crying. I look around the Castle Mall View Cinema and I see that there are about six other people in the theater. On the screen is Emma Stone, and she's sobbing too. She's playing Billie Jean King. She's in the locker room. She's just gotten off the court after having beaten Bobby Riggs in the Battle of the Sexes. Now, I had gone to the movie because I thought it would be uplifting, but so I couldn't understand what was going on with, with this like full body heaving. So it took me back to that day that September day in Texas in 1973. I had just turned 15. I had asked my parents if they'd take me to Houston to see the match, but I knew they'd say no. We couldn't afford the gasoline for the eight-hour drive, or the tickets, or a motel, but we could have slept in the back of the green station wagon like we always did when we went to visit relatives in Mexico. So I'm sitting at home alone watching watching the match on TV, And every time that Billie Jean loses a point, it's like a dagger in my heart. Because, you see, I'm I'm fighting a battle of the sexes too, with my macho brother. Now, every time he wanted to destroy me, he'd bring out a big gun. His big gun insult was to call me a feminist, which always worked because in this, both my cultures agreed. Girls were inferior and we were just good for cooking and cleaning and to be pleasing to the eye. So my whole life was riding on Billie Jean King's win. I needed her to prove them wrong. But being a girl wasn't the only problem. That wasn't the only problem I had. Being Mexican wasn't so great either. (laughs) Uh, Let me tell you about this little town that I was born in, San Benito, Texas. It was uh, spitting distance from the Mexican border. Uh, Population about 16,000. Uh, 95% of the population was Mexican and 5% was white American. Now, it was pretty obvious to anyone in the town, even a kid, that the the Mexicans were the ones that picked the the cotton and picked the citrus fruit and basically did the hard agricultural labor. And the 5% white Americans owned the businesses and they ran the town and they ran the schools and they lived on the beautiful side of the tracks. In junior high, I had to go to a Texas history class where basically I was told daily that I was a descendant of the evil Mexicans who had destroyed the great white Americans at the Alamo. In fact, all the streets in my town were named after those great white American heroes. We lived on on Ben Milam, and the main street was Sam Houston, and I had friends that lived on Davy Crockett. I had hit the trifecta of diversity. I was Mexican, female, and poor. 
Now, we didn't have the words back then for like diversity or income inequality or gender equality. The word I had for woman was weak. The word I had for Mexican was illiterate. And the word I had for poor was disadvantaged. Now, there's a school of spiritual thought that says that your soul gathers together with all the souls of the important people in your life. And they sign a, a sacred contract before you're born. Now, don't, don't apply too much logic to this. But basically, it means that your soul chooses your birth parents and the time and place of your birth. So when I heard this theory, I was sort of like, why would my soul do that to me? <laughs> Make me a poor Mexican female in 1960s Texas. And then, just for fun, my soul decided to throw in a fourth category, gay. <laughs> so it was like my soul had entered me in the grand slam of shame. That's what, that's what it felt like. Um, so what happens to a kid? What happens to a kid that's born into those four categories? Well, basically, you enter into a world of no's. As a Mexican, it was like, no, you can't speak Spanish on the playground. Uh, and if you do, we have this big wooden paddle with holes in it that are meant to leave red welts on your skin. And then in high school, it was like, no, you'll never get into Yale. In fact, we had a white counselor that told the, the Yale Chicano recruiter that there wasn't anybody smart enough in that school to go to Yale and that he shouldn't bother wasting his time. Now, the no's I got as a girl were, were like, no, you can't be an altar boy. No, you can't wear trousers to church. Uh, no, you can't buy desert boots. I had my heart set on these desert boots. My, my dad would give us a quarter, me and my sister a quarter, every Friday for allowance. And it took me a long time to save up. And finally, when I had enough money, I went into the store. And the clerk, the clerk told me that it was illegal to sell a boy's shoe to a girl. <laughs> he really did. Now, in the world of sports, it was like, no, you cannot choose from the world of sports. Uh, girls can only play tennis and volleyball. And I hated volleyball. And then in electives, it was like, no, you cannot take woodworking or auto mechanics. Uh, I still can't change a flat tire. Um, but you can take homemaking. And if you're really ambitious, you take typing or shorthand. So as, um, that was as a girl. As a, as a poor person, the, the no's are sort of too many to recount. But the one I remember is um, when I asked my parents if I could try out for the high school tennis team, they said no because we couldn't afford the $35 for the wooden tennis racket. And then as a gay person, I, I wasn't out in Texas. Um, I was still dating boys. Those no's came later. And they were like, no, you can't hold hands in public. No, you cannot marry the woman you love. No, you can't reap the benefits of a, of an, of a joint income tax return. Now, the no's that I got at Yale just rose to a whole nother level. Um, the first class of women at Yale was the class of 1971, and I was in the class of 1979. Now, the no's I got there, they were telling me no for things I didn't even know existed, like secret societies. There were these big buildings, um, big imposing buildings with no windows, and God only knows what, what went on in those buildings, but only white men were allowed. And then there was, a, there was a club called Maury's. It just looked like a fancy restaurant that we had to walk past to get to class every day. And no women or minorities were allowed in that club. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and then in the, in the world of academics, uh, the, there were some elite seminars that you had to apply for that only 10 students could get into. Now, the only one I ever got into was a Native American one. So while my white classmates were studying fiction with Gordon Lish or studying Shakespeare with Harold Bloom, I was learning how to build a sweat lodge out of tree branches in the Connecticut woods. Um, my freshman year roommate, Evie, she was a New Yorker, she told me pretty early on that my presence at the university as an affirmative action student um, pretty much was degrading the value of her diploma. So she was like, no, you cannot eat with me in the dining hall. The freshman dining hall was called Commons. It was this big building made of white, there were like white pillars. And when you walk in, to the left is the black table, and then the Asian table, and then the Hispanic table. And then there was like a sea of white tables. I'd never seen so many white people in my life. And it was like, it was a free, it's a free country, right? So you can sit wherever you want, but it was pretty awkward if you didn't sit at your designated table. <laughs> Good old Yale. <laughs> um, anyway, you've heard the theory of 10,000 hours. So the theory is that if you want to get good at anything, all you need to do is spend 10,000 10, hours doing that thing. Uh, it's the theory behind why Bill Gates and Steve Jobs are so successful, because they had been tinkering with computers for 10,000 hours in their garage before they hit puberty. Now, my super skill was that I had faced 10,000 hours of no's before I graduated from university. Uh, so, for example, in, in, the, in my twisted little girl mind, I had developed the idea that a no was not a no, that it was just a temporary obstacle, and that my one job in life was to figure out the workaround. So, in my elementary school, I made my little friends cross the street so we could speak Spanish, because then we weren't technically on the playground. And my mother found the, f she somehow scraped together $35, and got me that tennis racket and handmade me those, those tennis outfits. And I became the number one singles player at the high school. Yeah, <laughs> you overcome these things. Uh, I got into Yale, and then when I got there, I got a job as part of the work-study program. I got a job as a, in the admissions office so I could go back to Texas and recruit more disadvantaged Mexicans to go to Yale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then, no, 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 it's not like that. Um, <laughs> and then, um, oh, as a, as a professional, I became an author of Spanish textbooks. So basically, I made a career out of the language that they had forbidden me to speak. And in a weird twist of fate, I did a Yale Writers Workshop in 2013. I was in my mid-50s. And um, for some reason that year, they decided to do the student readings at Maury's. So I was able to read an excerpt from my work in the club that, they, that I could not set foot in when I had been a student. Now, the, the, the nose that the world throws at you, you can't overcome all of them. I never bought those desert boots. And I couldn't play singles at Yale because the girls that I was competing against had all trained at Chrissy Everett's um, Tennis, her father's tennis camp in Florida, and I just, I just couldn't compete with that. And 
Gail and I, even though we were together for 30 years, we were never able to get married. The, uh, this, the Supreme Court approved, approved same-sex marriage six months after she died. So that was a no that I was not able to overcome. Uh, the other thing I learned in those 10,000 hours was that the no's that the world throws at you are not necessarily the hardest ones to overcome. It's the ones that you tell yourself. So like, no, you can't do public speaking. <laughs> no, you can't write a novel. No, you're not good enough to fill in the blank. In another weird twist of fate, Gail and I had moved to Newport, Rhode Island, which is the, the home for the International Tennis Hall of Fame. So every July, all the tennis elite from all over the world come to Newport to induct the latest member of the Hall of Fame. So I was in the grocery store and I was walking out. It's a grocery store across the street from the Hall of Fame. And who's standing there? But Rosie Casals and, yep, Billie Jean King. <laughs> and before the 45-year-old in me could say no, the 15-year-old screamed out, Billie Jean, you're my, <laughs> you're my hero. Now she turned to look at me, I think to see if I was a lunatic, but then she, a smile just lit up her face and she reached out and she shook my hand and she said, thank you. And I just floated away. Um, my mother, when she died last year, had lived in a, in a gorgeous home for over 20 years on the right side of the tracks. Uh, Billie Jean is still fighting for equal pay for women in tennis. But the tennis complex in New York where they play the US Open has now recently been renamed the Billie Jean King Tennis Center. So because of my mother and because of Billie Jean and because of a million other women along the way, now when I see a no, I add a W for woman and it becomes now. Now's the time. Now's the time for all of us to be Billie Jeans. True story. Thank you. True Stories Live is a story show and story finding project brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Arts Centre and me, Molly Naylor. For more information about all of the work that we do, head to our website, truestorieslive.co.uk. We're super grateful to be supported by Arts Council England, Norfolk County Council and Writer Centre Norwich. <laughs> <laughs>